If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Um, today, I'm excited we have Nova Spivak as our guest. Nova is uh, an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, an author. He's a great many other things. He's referred to by a wide variety of sources as a polymath. And he's uh, recently become and started uh, a science and tech studio called Magical, which he serves as CEO. He's had his finger in all sorts of pies of things that you're probably familiar with. He was um, the first investor in cloud. He, he was in early on what eventually came Siri. He was the co-founder of EarthWeb, RadarNet, Daily Dot, Live Matrix. He's, it sounds like he does you know, more before breakfast than I managed to get done in a week. Welcome to the show, Nova. Thank you. Very kind of you. So let's start off with... Um, Artificial intelligence. Uh, what when when I when I when I read what you write and when I watch videos about you, you have a very clear view of how you think the future is going to unfold with regard to technology and AI specifically. Can you just take whatever time you want and just describe for our listeners how you think the future is going to happen? Sure. So I've been working in the AI field um, since long before it was popular to say that. Uh, I actually started um, while I was still in college working uh, for Kurzweil uh, in one of his companies in an AI company that built the Kurzweil reading machine. Um, and I was doing early neural network there. Um, that was you know, the, the end of the 80s, early 90s. Uh, and then I worked under Danny Hillis at Thinking Machines on supercomputing and AI-related applications. Uh, and then after that, I uh, was involved in a company called Individual, which was the first company to do um, intelligent agent-powered news filtering, uh, and then uh, began to start internet companies uh, and uh, worked in the semantic web, um, large-scale uh, collaborative filtering projects, uh, intelligent assistance. I advise a company called Next IT, which is one of the leading bot platforms, uh, and I've built a big data mining analytics company. So I've been deeply involved in this technology on a hands-on basis, both uh, as a scientist and even as an engineer in the early days, and then uh, from the marketing and business side uh, and venture capital side. So I really know the space. Um, so first of all, uh, you know, it's great to see AI uh, in vogue again. Uh, I lived through the first AI winter um, and the, the second sort of unacknowledged AI winter around uh, the, the, the birth and death of the semantic web. Uh, and now here we are in you know, the neural network machine learning renaissance. Uh, it's wonderful to see this happening. However, uh, I think that um, the, the level of hype um, that we see um, is probably not calibrated with reality. Um, and that you know, inevitably there's going to be um, a period of disillusionment um, as, as some of the promises that have been made, you know, don't pan out. Um, so, you know, I think we have to keep a very realistic view of, of what this technology is and what it can and cannot do uh, and where it fits 
in the larger landscape of uh, machine intelligence. So we can talk about that today. Uh, I, I definitely have uh, a viewpoint that's different from uh, some of the other pundits in the space in terms of uh, when or if the singularity will happen. Um, and in particular, spent years thinking about and studying cognitive science and consciousness. Uh, and I have some views on that based on a lot of research um, that are probably a little different than, than what we're hearing from some of the mainstream thinkers. So, you know, I think it'll be an interesting conversation today as, as we get into some of these questions and, and get Alrighty, probably well, pretty far into both technology and philosophy. Sorry, go ahead. Let's gradually peel that onion and let's, let's go through the, the outer layers of, of what's real today, what's likely tomorrow, where you think the hype is, where you think consciousness stems from, whether machines will be able to uh, to achieve it and so forth. So let's let's gradually let's gradually get there. So you start off with some quali qualified statements that yeah, it's exciting, but it's overhyped. So do you think that we're going to have another AI winter where? Because many people would say the opposite to say you know it's finally like consistently delivering things, and because of that, it will it will always kind of. Even if it drags a little bit, it's never going to be like people are like, oh, that AI is not going to, you know, you know whatever. Um, I think the, the, the AI winter will occur, but it will happen more in the venture capital arena. Um, yeah, machine learning uh, technology, um, as distinct from what would some, some people would call AI, but machine learning um, is certainly uh, mainstream today as a result of the availability of cheap resources in the cloud um, and, and libraries which you know, enable this mass scale machine learning in the cloud. Um, so that's real, it's, it's, it's finally affordable and it does deliver results in certain areas. Um, and so that will be a part of more and more um, products and services going forward and there's no question about that. Um, however, uh, just mentioning AI in the elevator pitch of your company will probably not result in a funding round uh, within about a year. So with regard to what's real, you know, Kevin Kelly says it's like electricity. You're just going to plug into the AI wall. Uh, Andrew Ng, who's not one to make uh, preposterous statements, he also thinks that it is a ubiquitous uh, technology that's going to, to kind of touch every part of the organization. Would on that side of the fence of, of what's real and what's doable in a reasonable amount of time, would you agree with, with those sentiments, funding, funding aside? No, yes. I mean, we should probably define our terms more precisely. Um, you know, there, there's machine learning, which is effectively a form of fancy classification. Um, and that's, you know, happening all over the place um, in the background to make apps uh, better at recognizing anything from languages, language to, you know, images to things in videos uh, to what you say when you talk to a device. Um, so that capability is going to be baked into the interface of all kinds of things. Um, AI, on the other hand, um, real, uh, quote, intelligence, such as what we are starting to see with services like Siri and Alexa, um, that is... Uh, still a big question mark. I mean, what we're seeing today with simple services that can answer questions or even orchestrate simple tasks, um, you know, is not really that impressive. It, there's not really much or even any reasoning 
taking place. Uh, so, you know, that's really the question. You know, what about reasoning? So let's, let's talk about that for just a minute, because there is no consensus definition for what artificial intelligence is. And that is for two reasons. One, because there's no consensus definition for what intelligence is in general. And, and second, because uh, of the word artificial, which people differ on what that means. So other than the word artificial and the word intelligence, it's like a perfect phrase. So when you, when, when you are using it, it seems like when, when you invoke concepts like, re so the, the most simple one definitions would be that it reacts to its environment. So your sprinkler system that comes on when your lawn is dry, that is actually a form of intelligence. But you're using it in a whole you, you set the bar incredibly higher. So where would you draw? And it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't, it isn't a debate, just a clarification. Where are you using the term? Well, I mean, maybe the way to discuss it, it would be in terms of a continuum um, with different levels of intelligence in that continuum. Um, so, yeah, I mean, by one definition, you know, any system that fights entropy, you know, could be considered intelligent. Um, that's a pretty low-level definition of an intelligence, and even a rock would satisfy that. Um, as you move up the scale, you know, we now see um, you know, integrated information theory and you know, more advanced definitions of what makes a system, quote, intelligent or potentially, by some people's definitions, conscious. So how do we, how do we dial that in? You know, I would say that um, you know, you've got a stimulus and you've got a response. Um, and th there's a black box in the middle. Um, and the question is, how can you characterize or differentiate these, the black box from other black boxes? Um, and, you know, one way to think about it is, you know, what, is the, what would be the complexity necessary to define or describe the transform that takes place between the set of all stimuli and the set of all responses that a thing can generate? On um, some systems, it's a very simple mapping. That's a one-to-one -one mapping. Um, other systems, it's incredibly complicated and conditional with a lot of reasoning and, and, and non-determinism in the middle. Um, and so you know, that's where we get into, you know, more advanced forms of intelligence um, that, you know, begin to resemble what humans can do. Um, right now, what we see are, are basically very simple systems that can classify things. Stimulus comes in, a classification task takes place, and a, a set of probabilities um, comes out for the things that it matches. And, you know, you choose the things or thing that has the highest match. Um, and that's about it. That's very simple. There, there's, you wouldn't even really say there's any kind of higher level reasoning or conceptual um, and thinking going on in these systems. Um, so that's what a kind of neural network does. As you move up, though, to an expert system or, um, you know, what was previously called an expert system and is now called artificial general intelligence or AI, um, that's where you have to have a, a model of, of the domain, a model of the world that that system operates in. And that is a higher level construct. It's not merely a matching or a classification task, but often uh, it involves um, higher level uh, concepts about the various actors, entities in that world, uh, and what the rules are um, for how they can relate. And then the system has to reason against that to figure out uh, what is possible in a given situation. And sometimes it's, it's complicated because there can be competing goals or there can be more than one alternative. 
for what can happen. So that's where you get into a more sophisticated form of intelligence that's far beyond uh, what neural networks today are doing. Neural networks don't maintain these kinds of high-level constructs. And basically, uh, you know, they really can only uh, address uh, situations which they've already been trained to recognize and classify. And a more sophisticated form of intelligence uh, has a model of the world uh, and is able to reason about um, situations that it hasn't been trained on. And you made a passing reference in, in kind of your hierarchy, uh, the black box that had a layer of non-determinism in the middle. Is that a, a theoretical construct, or are you saying present-day systems that, that have that? Oh, I mean, you could say a neural network is sort of non-deterministic, right? But And it's very hard to actually, even as a human, to explain what a neural network does. Even people who make neural networks can't exactly tell you what's going on inside. It's too complicated. Um, but, but nonetheless, how is that, that non deterministic? I mean, the machine it's running on is deterministic, and therefore, like, all the machine of is yeah. The, the machine is deterministic, although um, you know, in an, in a neural network, you could say in in many of them that if you if you are able to see every single computation that happens, um, you would be able to deterministically say what the result is going to be. Um, however, you know, it's not clear that the human brain works that way. Quantum mechanics doesn't necessarily work that way. And, and if, the, if human intelligence or higher level intelligence is deeply connected to the substrate, and that's a deep question, but if it is, um, and, you know, there are people like Hameroff and others who would say that it is, or Penrose, they would say that it is, um, then there's a, there's a level of um, quantum uncertainty in the system where, you know, probabilities and interference patterns um, play a huge role in, in what the brain does. If that's the case, uh, it, it may not be possible to deterministically predict what the system will do. So let's do that, because you're right that Richard, Richard Penrose says that there are problems that can be shown to not be algorith algorithmically solvable that the human brain can therefore solve. And so he suggests that we are not, that our brain's doing things that a... Um, that a classical computer, as we understand them, could not replicate. Do you, you make reference to that? Do you do you concur with it? And if so, what are the implications of that? Well, I I I believe that he's right, but I don't think anybody has answered this question scientifically. I don't think there's a definitive answer. Um, but I, my, my hunch is that you know that is correct. Um, and that's because I think there is a deep connection between the human brain and the substrate that it's running on, which is quantum mechanics. I believe that the human brain is a quantum computer, not a classical computer. So, you know, that's an important distinction um, because quantum computers are capable of doing things that classical computers cannot do. Uh, and that's really what um, Penrose is getting at. He basically uh, believes that um, the microtubules in the brain are, qua are quantum resonators, and that's where the computation is taking place, which would mean that uh, computation is happen happening at many orders of magnitude smaller scale than neurons, um, and that a neuron itself is a kind of supercomputer. Um, if that's the case, then the, the activation of, a, of the neural network in the brain is a is a very high level phenomena as far as we, what we see today is a very high level emergent phenomena um, from a system that may be operating much closer to the Planck scale, in fact, 
if that's the case, the amount of computation happening in the human brain um, vastly, uh, it's, it's vastly greater than, than what we think it is today. And, and therefore, um, you know, if that's the case, the singularity, if it ever happens, is much farther off in the future than Kurzweil thinks. Well, this is exciting to talk to you because, um, as you alluded at the beginning, um, this, is, this is certainly, I guess you would call it, uh, a more minority viewpoint. And so it's, it's great to hear somebody who's so well-versed in it to, dis, to, uh, to advocate for it. I've never really fully understood, though, why the micro, microtubules in the brain would be any different than the microtubules tubules and skin cells or in the cells of a bacteria. I mean, like They're not every- necessarily, except that the brain is, you could say, kind of wired into that level. Um, it's a learning machine that's wired into that layer. So you know, if, that, if it's the case that, and forget about whether it's microtubules or something else, if it's the case that quantum level activity um, has a major impact on what neurons, axons, dendrites are actually doing, you know, what's going on in synapses, if it's really, uh, if it's really tied to the quantum level, uh, then you know, it opens up some big questions about you know, what type of computer is the brain. You know, I think a really strong supporting point for that position is, uh, you know, sometimes people look at the brain and say, well, you know, there's a hundred hundred billion neurons. So it, you know, it makes sense. We kind of can't model that yet, but you know, there's been a project underway for 20 years to, uh, to take the nematode worm, arguably the most successful organism on the planet, like 10% of everything that's alive is a nematode worm has something like as many neurons in its brain as there are, you know, bowl it's Cheerios in a bowl of cereal, like 327 or something. And yet we, we don't even have the beginnings of being able to model that brain and, and, and create, as it were, um, a microtubule, a digital microtubule, uh, a form of digital We're not life. even trying to do that yet, right? Right. I mean, we're, we're making primitive models of, of neuronal systems. Um, and you think that's a fool's, that, a fool's errand to try to model the brain because we're, we're looking at a, at a neuron at, at most as some kind of a binary or, or analog it's not a sort fool's, of... It's not a fool's errand any more than you know, using systems of differential equations to model physics is a fool's errand, right? I mean, it's, you're, you're, you're kind of chunking reality at a certain level and, and making um, you know, various inferences about it based on a model that you've constructed. Fair enough. I, um, I and that may, have some, that may have some predictive power, right. but it doesn't, sh- have ex- doesn't necessarily have explanatory power, and there may be things it can't predict. Uh, right. I, I, I was overstating that to say that perhaps people who think, aha, we're going to build this and, and you're going to have emergent intelligence come out of it, emergent consciousness come out of it, that, that no matter how... Well, let's, good- make a, let's make a distinction. You certainly can have emergent intelligence even from very simple systems. I spent yes. years working on cellular automata. Um, many, many people listening are probably familiar um, with Conway's Game of Life and maybe um, A New Kind of Science by Wolfram or Ed Fredkin's work at MIT. It goes back to Stanislaw Ulam's work. Um, and actually to von Neumann, all of this uh, kind of models of finite automata, cellular automata, uh, artificial life uh, from the Santa Fe Institute um, in, the, in the 90s, uh, all of this work on emergent computation and chaos theory, you know, that's all about how systems can do intelligent things with very simple rules and local rules operating on simple um, components. So, you know, systems can actually be quite 
intelligent um, in a completely bottom-up and emergent fashion. And, and, and neural networks illustrate that as well. That is, you know, they can uh, respond to a range of stimuli uh, with, with outputs that are kind of optimally um, determined based on the stimuli. And that um, in, can, can be, according to some fairly complex functions, if you will. Um, and when you start getting systems of these uh, little uh, stimulus response systems and you wire them up to each other you, into a feedback loops, you start to get very dynamical, complex emergent systems, um, which are extremely uh, interesting. And that's why, you know, the game of life, very simple rule, um, can generate, you know, uh, outputs that seem like bacterial cultures. Very, very interesting. Um, and Wolfram has also shown in his work that um, there's a, le a, a level at which systems um, can, are, are, can compute um, in a way that um, is uh, basically too complex for us to understand and that all systems that achieve this level are effectively computationally equivalent to each other. Um, so that's interesting. Um, that is a form of intelligence. And that's the problem with this word is it's a very loosely defined word. Um, but, you know, that is not necessarily a form of cognition or human-like cognition. That's, we have to really make a clear distinction. You know, it's interesting that, um, you know, our vocabulary for talking about cognition and intelligence is so primitive. We have so few words for making distinctions in this, in this arena. You know, it's, it's said that Eskimos, I, I can't remember how many different kinds of snow they have words for. You know, we have a lot of words for different forms of capital in the West. That seems to be something we're very good at making distinctions about. But intelligence is an area where we're, we have a fairly blunt instrument today for talking about it. There is not just one form of intelligence. There are many levels of intelligence. In fact, intelligence might be a multidimensional space. There might be several di dimensions that we need to, in order to describe intelligence accurately. It's funny because Wolfram in, in A New Kind of Science, which you referred to, speculates that you can actually generate the entire universe, everything, you, me, you know, everything, all the Eskimos and their words for snow and all of that. And, you know, he's he, with very few lines of code. And, you know, I think well, he speculates. Well, that's the, that's the it, hope. And, and, and that comes from actually, twenty that stems lines. from Ed Fredkin. Yeah, that stems from Ed Fredkin, who started the computer science lab at MIT and was one of the first people to take the original cellular automata ideas from Stan Ulam and start to apply them to physics. Um, so Ed Fredkin started the field of digital physics, in my opinion, and Wolfram uh, took it up uh, years later and really innovated. Um, but lots of others have worked in that space. Um, Toffoli and Margolis at MIT, who I worked with, um, built a parallel computer just for cellular automata computing on physics. And I worked on that machine. Um, you know, Danny Hillis worked on that at Thinking Machines. Um, but what Wolfram has done is, is, is actually explored the space of all possible cellular automata in a way that nobody else has and systemized, systematized it. Um, and I don't think anybody will really understand his work, um, you know, in the near future. I think it'll be 50 years before people fully understand and appreciate his work. Uh, maybe longer, but it's it's important work actually. Um, in any case, the the point here is you can build you know all kinds of emergent systems, but um, 
making an emergent system doesn't necessarily mean that that system has the potential to be as intelligent as what we consider a human to be. You, think- you can simulate that you can potentially simulate or build a universe this way. Wolfram's trying to find an, a simple underlying graph automata, a kind of a network automata, if you will, that uses simple graph rules to, to search for something that's similar and potentially a candidate for our physics. Uh, it's possible. If, if, in fact, our physics is reducible, it may or may not be ultimately as reducible as people think. But if it is, um, there may be a way to describe it with simple emergent um, rules, simple uh, computational rules that can generate this behavior from, from the bottom up at a very what? low level. It's possible. That's what he's hunting for. If that's true, the same kind of network automata ultimately that describe uh, the fundamental layers of the universe, whatever that layer is, um, ultimately would then be generating, of course, everything that emerges from it, including the brain. Let's talk about that reducibility of physics. So uh, for, the, for, to, for the benefit of the listeners, there's two kinds of emergence that we may be referring to here. One of them is, is so-called weak emergence, where um, you, you, so emergence, broadly speaking, is when uh, systems take on characteristics that none of the individual components have. So you could spend a year studying oxygen and a year studying hydrogen and never kind of understand that if you put those things together, they become wet, this, this brand new thing. But once, once it happens, you're like, oh, I can kind of see how that happened. That's weak emergence. Everyone agrees that happens. But then there's this idea that there may be something called strong emergence, where things, individual components assume characteristics in, in a system that none of the individuals have. And there actually is no way to uh, reduce it back to the, that. You can never look at it and say, oh, I see how that's happening. And some people reject strong emergence because it seems almost an appeal to some kind of mysticism, which adherence to it, say, emphatically is not. It's, it's a property of science, as it were, that we just don't really understand. What do you think on that topic? Um, well, actually, um, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's been some research lately um, that's starting to show it, there are, uh, it is possible to describe emergent level behaviors um, that cannot be reduced to the underlying system. Um, systems can generate new levels of structure that cannot easily be reduced back down. Um, I've always had a hunch that there's something like that going on in the universe. Another way of thinking about it is that um, there may be feedback in both directions. It may be that it's not just bottom up, but there's, there's you could call it you know, feedback from the top down. Um, so it's very hard to understand what's going on if you're only looking at things in a, in a bottom-up emergent view. Uh, for example, um, it has been shown that, or people are theorizing that, that the, lo- the physical laws uh, can be locally variant depending on what's actually in space in a region. Something about what's going on in a region of space can actually impact the underlying physical laws in that region to some degree. Um, if that's the case, you can, that's an example of, of, of feedback in both directions. Um, we also see that happening you know, with the human mind and brain. We are able to use our minds to change the underlying behavior of our physical brain. 
Um, so there's a high level construct, the mind, if you will, and it's pushing activity back down potentially all the way to the quantum level. So, you know, if that's the case, if feedback goes in both directions, um, then it's extremely difficult to, to really unpack the causality behind anything. If the brain is a quantum machine, and then we read in um, the media that we're building quantum computers, and um, I saw a person at Google saying within 10 years, all, um, big, uh, all, all deep learning will be done with quantum computers. Are those two things analogous? Are the, mach- are the quantum machines we're building the same use of the, of the term quantum as, as our brain being a quantum system? Uh, I mean, ultimately, yes. Um, in the near term, no. The, the quantum systems, that, the quantum computers that we're building today are quite simple. They have basically a few qubits, a few processors, um, and the, the kinds of interactions that are possible um, within and between them are, are fairly simple. Um, you know, what the brain may be doing, uh, you know, could be far more complicated. It, the brain may be making use of quantum tunneling and non-locality, you know, the EPR effect. The brain may be, you know, deeply based on uh, the, the collapse of the quantum wave function um, being conditioned by activity across many processors with, rather than within just one. Whereas in a qubit, you're looking at the collapse happening in just one processor. So, you know, I think that it's very likely that um, there are quantum effects across the neurons, not just within the neurons, and um, potentially even between different minds, because quantum systems can resonate with other quantum systems. They don't have to all, you know, you don't, once you get to that layer, you can't really even combine it to the physical skull anymore. Um, you could really say that the you know, quantum field, which you know encompasses the entire universe, is intimately connected to what each different brain is doing, um, and that's likely. It's likely, in my opinion, that there is a deep physical connection to the substrate, um, and this is where my views um, kind of differ from what I would say are the the views today of of people who are overly enamored with. Um, sort of metaphor of computers. Um, there's a view which I call magical complexity theory, um, which is very widely accepted today, which is that if you just add a, enough things to a system and make it complicated enough, it just suddenly magically becomes intelligent and conscious. That's kind of the Skynet theory. You know, just, just keep adding stuff and suddenly the Terminator appears. Um, I don't believe that. I don't think it's just a matter of complexity. Um, I, I think that there's, there's more to the story. I don't think consciousness is merely, uh, information. I don't think that simply having the information to describe a conscious system would be equivalent to the consciousness of that system. So I'm probably more in the camp of people like Searle, um, who believe that there's something kind of unique and special about consciousness that, that is not the same as um, information. Well, I want to I want to get to that all of that, uh, but you're you're you've got so many things. I, I keep making all these notes. So, backing up maybe forty five seconds, you therefore, and I'm putting words in your mouth, so I could be completely wrong. Wouldn't dismiss out of hand things that um, a 
somebody else might regard as some form of, you know, uh, ESP or telepathy or telekinesis or these these pseudosciences. No, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen that stuff happen. I've witnessed that stuff happen. And I even have seen it in the lab. So I know that stuff is possible. And I think those terms are just, it's just things we don't have physical explanations for today. And, uh, and, and but that doesn't mean it, there doesn't mean there isn't a physical cause. Fair, fair enough. I mean, absolutely. Uh, and, and you think that in the quantum aspect of our universe, you can find the scientific answers to those questions. I mean, it's easy to throw the word quantum at any problem and just say that's the new answer for everything. Um, so I'm not going to say that that's the only right. thing we need to explain what's going on. It's definitely the next step. Um, there's probably a step beyond what we think right. of as quantum mechanics today, right? Because there's still a lack of connection between the quantum explanation of the world and the relativistic explanation of the world. Right. Those two layers or levels of scale aren't connected yet. That's really the missing piece. My guess is the big insight is going to come from graph theory, uh, topology, um, and that's in a way what Wolfram's trying to do. He's trying to make that connection between the quantum level and the relativistic level by unifying these systems with a with a type of graph theoretic approach. Um, others in you know superstring theory and others, you know, they're also using uh, you know approaches to build that bridge. Um, there may be an information theoretic approach or a statistical approach that builds that bridge. These will probably all turn out to be equivalent in the end to you know, some very simple universal rule. And that, that's, the, that's the hope of digital physics. And I actually believe you know, it's possible to get there. But when we get there, the universe may end up looking a lot more like a network um, than, than what we think of it as today. So do you have an opinion on the, on the Gaia hypothesis that the, the entire planet is... Uh, so there was a wonderful book published. Um, actually, I have it right here. It's called Living Systems, and it was by James Greer Miller. Um, it's out of print, um, but it was published uh, in 1978. Um, and it's the Bible uh, on this particular question um, about what is a living system. What they found is that there are, I think it was 19 different systems, subsystems that all living things have, you know, ingestion, excretion, digestion. Uh, any system that has these 19 different systems could be said to be a living system. And by that definition, um, not only, you know, a cell, a person, uh, a beehive, um, but also uh, a city, a, a company, or the entire planet, or a galaxy, they could all be considered living systems under that definition. Um, now, they might all be living systems, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have the same level of intelligence. You know, it's, it's an interesting question. Take a galaxy, right, or a planet. Um, they are, you know, if we just take our galaxy, you know, that includes our planet, that includes us, then you can say there are intelligent things in there. But that doesn't mean the planet is intelligent or the galaxy is intelligent just because it has pieces that are intelligent. You could say there's some intelligence in it, but the whole system isn't necessarily intelligent. So what makes a system intelligent and, and what, what defines the boundary of its intelligence? So we, we talked about Penrose earlier when we were talking about um, artificial intelligence, but Penrose put forth his theory in part as an explanation of consciousness. 
I'm assuming you have uh, strong views on that. Where do you think consciousness stems from? All right. Well, that's a, it's an important question. It's probably the most important question, in my opinion. Um, I've been researching this from a lot of different angles. Um, so, you know, I've looked at it from the physics angle. I've looked at it from the computer science angle. And I've looked at it from the philosophy angle and even from the religion and spirituality angle. Um, there's a lot of different approaches to understanding consciousness. And you know, my view is that consciousness is a lot like electricity. It's already there. We don't create it. Um, there's a fundamental there's a fundamental field, if we if we will, um, which um, in the right kinds of, of systems emerges as what we think of as consciousness. It's baked into the physical substrate. That's my view of consciousness. So I don't think we ever create it or destroy it. I don't think it's something we synthesize, just like electricity. You know, we don't create it, we don't destroy it, but we are able to make it emerge in certain kinds of systems. You know, whenever we make a system that's powered by electricity, we're not creating the electricity, we're just taking the electricity that's there and channeling it through a certain kind of system. Um, and I think that, that what we think of as consciousness is something like that. That's distinct from what we think of as intelligence. Intelligence to me is information processing. It is the ability to manipulate systems of symbols or abstractions according to logic or some, some form of rule. Um, which could be statistical, but you know, intelligence systems that use some kind of rule or system of rules to to manipulate symbols or abstractions, um, you know, can be said to be intelligent. But consciousness is a, is a different thing altogether. And now there's some nuances here. First of all, when we say consciousness here in the West, we are referring to a kind of a special kind of experience which has a subject and an object in that experience. There's an aspect of this of the experience which is knowing what's taking place, and then there's what it knows. So that subject-object or dualistic view of consciousness is a kind of coarse definition of what's going on. That structure can be simulated and modeled and, and built into a system, and it can appear to have that structure. What I'm interested in is that subject part of the experience. If you zoom in and, and turn your focus at the subjective part, the subject that is supposedly knowing the object, my question is, what is going on there? How does the subject know? What is doing the knowing? It used to be that people would posit a kind of homunculus. You know, there's a little man inside our head that's looking at what we're looking at. Um, or it could be turtles all the way down. You know, a series of homunculi, all knowing each other. Um, those kind of infinite regress arguments don't work for me. Um, there's a Buddhist view, which I think makes a bit more sense, um, which is that actually this concept of a knower, of a subject, is kind of an illusion. It's not that there isn't anything taking place, but you can't actually say it is a knower or a thing. In fact, the, the Buddhist view of consciousness would, would equate it to something a lot more like what the term reality uh, means to us. That is, if something appears, it is known. Um, but you don't have to have a self or a person to know it. The knowing is actually baked into the substrate. So just by existing somewhere in the universe, it's being known, if you will, by the universe. 
a human or a, a knower that's equivalent to a human is a special kind of system that's designed to create an intelligent model of what's being known in a certain part of the universe. Uh, that, that intelligence is an information construct that reflects something that's taking place. But the knowing isn't in that system. The knowing's not in the construct, the, the information system that's, that's being generated there. The knowing is separate from it, and we mistakenly equate the two. So the, the deep insight is that the knowing itself, this ability to know, doesn't come from us. It isn't confined to our, our brains. It isn't something we can simulate. It's already there in the substrate. We appropriate it as our, something that we make, but that is a mistaken assumption. We think that it's ours, and we even say that we are it. But the thing that's saying we, the thing that says me or I, is a construct that is completely separate from the thing that is actually doing the knowing. That's a very, very important insight. Therefore, it is possible to build systems that model the intelligence that we would call human intelligence, that seem to synthesize it and, and mimic it. But the knowing will not be in those systems. And so then the question is, is the knowing simultaneous with such a system so that you would say that if you made a system that was sufficiently arranged, that, you know, it would, and, and it acted like it was knowing, that it would be knowing because the knowing's already there. Um, that's the big question. My view is that it probably is possible to do that, but it may require wiring that system to the substrate in a way that we currently cannot imagine. It may be that in order for the kind of inherent knowing capability of the substrate to coincide and be deeply connected to the dynamics of an information system, uh, we need to wire those together at a very deep level. And that's where I think quantum mechanics is probably going to be fruitful. Because I think that uh, quantum level devices uh, may be capable both of the information processing that we equate to intelligence today uh, and the direct connection to the, to the substrate, to the quantum nature of space and time, uh, to unify those in a single device. And in fact, I'm working on that. Um, and I haven't talked about it publicly, but I actually built a device that seems to do this. Uh, it's still experimental and needs a lot of testing, but I have built a device in a lab somewhere in the world that does this. And you heard it here first on Voices in AI. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep up with you here, and there was a whole lot in that. I'm sure it's a lifetime of thinking of yours distilled down into two minutes. Help me understand it. Let me give you two, two uh, traditional problems you've probably heard of, and, and help me understand in, in those problems what you think is going on by, uh, based on what you just said. So one of them is Frank Jackson's problem of Mary. So to set it up for the audience, uh, there's a person named Mary. She knows everything about color, literally everything, like in a godlike way. She knows everything. There's nothing about color, about photons, about her brain, about the cones in her eyes. She knows everything. And yet the catch is she's never seen color before. And then one, she's been in this room with black and white all her life. And one day she opens the door and she sees, you know, a, a red cardinal outside or something. And she sees red for the first time. Did she learn anything new? In other words, it's experiencing something different than knowing it, 
which I, I was hearing, and, and, and then the second one is, most of the time when people want to understand the difference between intelligence and consciousness, um, oftentimes you hear the story of when you're driving and you kind of just space out, um, and then all of a sudden, two minutes later, you're like, whoa, I don't remember driving here. And, and in that moment, when you were doing that driving, you were undoubtedly intelligent. You were merging with traffic and all of that, but you weren't conscious. And that that difference between how you felt when you're like, whoa, I don't know, remember dying, driving here, and how you felt one minute earlier, that's also consciousness, a way to understand it. So qualia, um, redness, experiencing something, and, and this feeling of feeling are, are kind of two ways people understand consciousness. How would you explain those two examples using kind of the language and, and model that you just articulated? Sure. Yeah. Uh, in the case of qualia, um, you could, you know, in the, in the, in the case of Mary, learn, you know, seeing color, um, there is definitely new information um, in that experience um, beyond her descriptions uh, and symbolic representation, uh, representations of color. Um, first of all, there's direct data coming from the census, um, which is not captured in these descriptions. Um, and that direct connection, that direct sensory experience, um, you could say is wired from the substrate all the way back to the substrate. So at the end of the day, what's really experiencing what the senses receive? Um, the data comes in, it, can, it gets interpreted, it gets classified, and you know, it connects to a conceptual system. Um, but at the end of the day, that conceptual system still doesn't really see or experience the color. The, that, the qualia, is something that only the substrate itself is capable of. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that fundamentally, the nature of reality is, uh, you might say, the unification of a form of emptiness or what some people would call space uh, or energy and the fundamental pure form of consciousness, um, which in this case is, I do not mean dualistic consciousness. I mean a, a kind of very base level uh, awareness that's inherent in everything in the universe. Uh, that awareness is not intelligence. It doesn't mean that a particle has a personality. Uh, it means that for something to even be at all, the quantum wave function had to collapse. And in order for that to happen, an observation of some sort kind of had to take place. What's making that observation? The substrate. So uh, effectively, qualia is an, you know, for, for qualia to arise, an observation has to take place. An observer has to observe something. Who or what is the observer? The, it, the observer has to be something which is able to cause the quantum wave function to collapse. Um, and for that to happen, as far as we know, um, it is not enough uh, to merely make a description of the system. Something actually has to observe it. And that's what I'm testing with the device that I made. Uh, we are finding some interesting things. Um, but what I would say at this point is that not everything is capable of observing. Only certain kinds of things are capable of making observations. And that is a clue to how to differentiate between things that are conscious and things that are not in, in the way that we think of consciousness. Now, in terms of um, you know, the this, this second uh, question, 
you know, I think that you know, fundamentally we are we're we're trying to describe a science that we haven't arrived at yet. Um, you know, we are uh, like people in you know the Baroque period of science trying to describe post-Newtonian physics that haven't emerged yet. So it's it's extremely difficult you know to to put these into you know, terms that make sense in today's framework. You know what I what I would say is that you know it's going to take time for for a vocabulary to emerge and for for ex repeatable experiments to be uh, formulated that can bit by bit reveal what's really going on here. But I think that ultimately um, the idea that a system that's functionally equivalent to something that we think of as intelligent is automatically conscious is wrong. So would you say, just based on what you just said, I've, I've, it's been described that consciousness is the greatest scientific question we don't even know how to ask, nor do we even know. <laughs> beautiful, really. that's a, yeah. It's a beautiful way of expressing it. Um, yeah, I, I think consciousness is actually the same question as what is space? What is time? What is energy? And those are questions which actually maybe cannot really ever be answered because there's nothing more fundamental that you can use to describe the answer. Or is there? Right? If you're in, it, sorry? Or is there? Well, we've always said that, right? That, that there's nothing. Right, well, there could be. More fundamental than that. Could be. We don't know. But the point is, we're inside a system. We're we're, we're byproducts of or, or phenomena that are emerging in a system, and we that those phenomena are trying to ask questions about the system. It's like we're in the matrix, and we're trying to ask about what is the matrix in. And it may not be the case that it is possible within the system to explain or describe what is beyond the system. In a way, you know, look at, you, you can look at um, Gödel, and Gödel showed that, you know, in any system that's equivalent to what we think of as mathematics, um, you know, it will either be uh, inconsistent or incomplete. That will mean, you know, that there will either be things that you can say that are true but are contradictions in the system, or there will be things that are true that you can't prove with the system, right? And so you have only those two choices. You, have to, you can either have something that's a consistent but has contradictions or, um, you know, incomplete. Can't, it can't answer everything that you know is true. Um, that is probably our fate scientifically. You know, it, at least if we're trying to make any kind of formal system, it may end up that that's the dilemma. Um, it may be that to truly understand what is beyond the boundaries of the universe, the mind, we have to be willing to go to a kind of direct experience. And this gets into a kind of a realm which is outside of science and, and, and some, some might not view it as even valid to explore. But you know, it may be that to truly understand the substrate, you have to experience the substrate that you can't actually measure it with anything because there's nothing deeper than the substrate to measure the substrate with. 
I want to back up. A and little if that's bit. the case, go ahead. If, if that's the case, you know, there are limits to what science is going to be able to tell us. That doesn't mean science isn't going to be useful. Science is going to be very useful for explaining what happens in the world, how the world works for the most part. But there may be a point at which the explanatory power of science um, ends and that there are still phenomena that happen that just cannot be explained because what, they are incomplete. They're the, they're the places where the system's incomplete. And that's what you mean always by will be. outside the realm of science. It isn't literally outside the realm of science. It's outside the realm of science to offer. And it's outside the reach of science because science is, requires, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you have to have a formal system that you're working with. And in any formal system, and you can go back to Gödel about this, in any formal system, there are going to be these, there are either going to be contradictions or holes. That's what Gödel is saying. Now, that means that no matter what we do in science, if science is equivalent to a formal system, there are going to be things that just don't make sense, that don't belong together in the theory, or there are going to be holes, things that we know are true, but we can't prove. So that, those, those holes are beyond the reach of that formal system, but you can prove that there's something there. And that means that it is possible, and in fact, it's, it's logical that in a formal system, there will always be things the formal system cannot fully explain. No formal system can be comprehensive and universal. Therefore, uh, that means that you know, science certainly it can take us very far, but it can't take us infinitely far. So there, are, gonna, there are things that can't be described okay. or explained with, with any scientific theory. I want to back up just a minute because you said something really fascinating that I want to, I want to go a little deeper on. So uh, this is a reference to not everything can make an observation. So to put that in the context, you know, I'm occasionally asked, like, what's, what's the craziest thing you know? Or, you know what? And, and it is un undoubtedly this phenomenon, which is um, often if, if, if a listener is interested in it, Google uh, double slit experiment. Uh, it's, uh, it's, this is um, something which physics has known about for 100 years. It's proven. Everybody agrees that it happens. There's, you can do these experiments with uh, what a what a university physics department would have. I mean, the the experiment is is in no way con uh, is in no way contested. In fact, uh, Richard Feynman said, "If you understand that, you understand quantum mechanics." The problem is nobody understands that, and the, the that in this case is that it can be shown that particles don't exist unless somebody observes them and forces them kind of to become something, to be something. I would even say more specifically, you know, the double foot experiment shows that the path that a photon takes um, is, is effectively indeterminate until an observation is made. When the observation is made, the system seems to congeal or what or we say the wave function collapses um, and then the system seems to have made a choice about what happened. And so the outcome, if you observe the system, uh, you generate sort of a different output than, than, than if you don't, is effectively what this is saying. If you, if you look closely to see, did a photon go through this hole or that hole or this slit or that slit, 
um, you get a different result than if you don't make that measurement. Um, and that's really weird. And then that has been, you know, that is often what is called the wave particle duality. The fact that light behaves both as a wave and as a particle. And, and nobody add, knows why. Right. And to add real quickly to that, and then I want to hear your thoughts on it, because I want to know what, we've only really thought of observers as people. And so I want to, I want to talk about that. But to even add more complexity, it seems the, the, the problem works across time in that hypothetically in your mind, imagine there's a video, you know, recorder recording this experiment and, um, and there's an outcome. And if you, if you, and let's say the outcome's recorded on film, whether, which one it went through, left or right or neither. If you want, if you, if you take that tape and take that film and you put them in a box for a hundred years and then a hundred years later you open them up and you watch that video and then develop the film, one thing will happen. If you develop, if you, if you take a hammer and smash the video and develop the film, there'll be a different thing on there. And um, it's too school of thought, you know, whether it's virtual causality or what have you, but, but it even seems to happen out of, out of time. So, what is your take on that? And what is an observer? Is well, a bacteria an observer? Is a rock an observer? Well, is a dog an observer? Question. So there's, there's actually um, something called, um, it's called the quantum eraser. And it's, it's, a, it's an experiment that establishes that wave function collapse um, can even be caused backwards in time. And that's the... the um, that's an experiment that should prove that. Um, so it is possible um, to make an observation that seems to somehow go backwards in time and change a system prior to when you observed it. Um, the question is, you know, as you asked, what is an observer? What's capable of making an observation? Um, one way that physicists will talk about that is uh, an observer is anything that's capable of creating past information um, about a system. Um, that is um, something that is capable of determining or measuring the path or potentially the path that uh, some particle like a photon uh, traveled over. Um, if a system is completely isolated and no path information comes out of that system, in other, that's equivalent to saying it's not being observed. Um, for a system like that, you can't say what state it's in. So you've heard of Schrodinger's cat you know, in the box. Um, until an observation has happened, no path information is coming out of that system. Nothing's observing it, and therefore the cat is neither alive nor dead. So one way of thinking about it is something, some special type of system or some phenomena is capable, if you will, of interacting with a quantum system and sucking some path information out of it or tapping some path information out of it. And path information is probabilities. It, it's probabilities about what things did. So it's, it's happening at a, almost like a pre-physical level, these probabilities. If you can get these probabilities about what a system's doing out of that system, then you are observing it. Anything that can interact with something else, in, in, in a sense, you could say there's an observation, a mutual observation taking place, because if something can interact with something, that's, that's causing a kind of wave function collapse. Um, but the question is, it, you know, why is it then 
that when you create a double slit experiment, the wave function doesn't immediately collapse. Why doesn't the physical apparatus observe itself and cause a collapse? It, that does not happen. So there seems to be something special, and you, know, you could say it's happening at a mathematical level, uh, about getting the probabilities about one system into another system. And we don't understand why or how that happens or what is capable of, of making that type of observation. It may be you know, that an appropriately configured video camera or measurement system can do that. For example, in the double slit experiment, uh, it's kind of a misconception that it's always a human observer causing the collapse. In fact, in the physics experiments that have been done, it's not a human observer. It's a physical system that makes the observation. But ultimately, a human has Looks to observe that. that. Data. Right. Yeah. And nobody can really say what's going on there prior to a human observing it. And is there anything special about us making that observation? Actually, it's testable. It's probably testable. But people haven't really created the experiments to test it yet. I mean, could you configure a double slit experiment and put a rat in front of it, you know, and an ant and a mouse and a human? And, you know, could you configure these to determine whether these are all capable of ultimately causing the wave function to collapse? It might be. Well, I think um, we know. I think we know that it isn't because, at some level, we know it isn't because all the bacteria in the room would have collapsed. It had well, yeah. I mean, they're not necessarily interacting with that apparatus. In the right. you know, the question is, you know, if you if if it was possible to get past information out of a system, but it required a certain ability to observe that past information, what is necessary to make that observation? Is it a video camera? You know, is it a well, photon detector? I saw a video. Or does it have to be? Sorry. No, no, I, I'm sorry. I saw a video, and I only read the subject of it because I knew we weren't going to talk about that in this chat, but it was you saying you believed we live in a simulation. Could it, if, if that were the case, which I'm, I'm not, a, I don't subscribe to that, but if that were the case, couldn't you say the interpretation of that experiment is that the computer running the simulation, it's just a coding, it's just a hack. Like, why should the computer work out all the details of where that mm -hmm. atom's going if nobody's ever, or that photon's going to go, if nobody's ever going to see it? So only if there's kind of somebody in the room does this simulation uh, have to spend the CPU resources to make it. And, that, and everything outside the room doesn't even exist because nobody's in a room. Yeah, I mean, that's room. kind of like how, how tiles are computed in massively parallel right. games. Exactly. Exactly. So do you um, and it's interesting. It's interesting, actually, that similar optimizations that you see in these massively parallel games might apply um, to making a computer that could compute efficiently at, at universal scale. But we're making a mistake in assuming that there are finite computing resources in the universe. That's not something that we know is necessarily true. We may not need to optimize like that. Uh, in any case, I, I just want to make sure it's clear. I'm not asserting that we live in a simulation, although if it's possible to live in a simulation, then I think it's highly likely that we live in a simulation. Right, but the, the not possible is the fact that we are, we are conscious within the simulation, and so it would, it would well, need yeah, to be... Well, I think, yeah, I think that um, it may be that consciousness is the gateway to... Um, determining the answer to questions like this, because you know, if consciousness can't be simulated, then the universe can't be simulated, because consciousness is occurring in the universe. So where do you? We're running out of time here, and so I'm, I'm eager that you, that you have all of these thoughts and 
Well, let me ask one quick question before that one. So this device you made, the, the gonculator, I don't know if it's been named yet, but mm-hmm. the gonculator, um, is that a pure science? Without, I know you're not talking about it, but is it's that a pure science, science experiment. or is it it's applied science? It's a science experiment. It's a science experiment. It is not, I'm not, it is not conscious. I'm not claiming I've made a device that's conscious. That's not, it isn't doing that. Um, but it is a device that seems to uh, potentially be able to measure observation. All right. And so where do you, where do you land with all of this? Like all of these thoughts are racing around in your head and you know, you're but it's not really down. like that. It's not being me. Isn't like all these thoughts racing around in my head. Um, I have different swim lanes that I'm working on. Uh, one of them is research into fringe technologies. Um, I, I kind of give myself license to explore, but from scientifically. Uh, and so I have collaborators that I'm working with um, who um, have the physics and, and, and engineering capabilities to test some ideas. And we've built you know, those experiments and tested them. And we've been doing that for quite a while. Uh, and so in that context, um, we've, you know, we're several generations into a device that right now is really a physics experiment to test some, some questions we, and ideas we had, some hypotheses we had about quantum mechanics. Um, but it turns out it, that device, uh, you know, as is often the case with R&D, you know, might give us some, some ideas for things with commercial potential in the future, uh, particularly in the field of quantum computing. So on that note, so if by night you are um, contemplating the mysteries of the universe, by day you're the CEO of Magical. Can you tell us about that, like what it is from a business yeah. standpoint, but also what is it about it that's, you know, that lights you up when you have a million things you could do today? Why is it like, I am going to start a company called Magical? Like why, 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 why? Well, Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And, and that's what Magical is about. We are about uh, originating and incubating um, sufficiently advanced technologies, things that seem magical today, um, and bringing them to market. So uh, Magical is really a vehicle for me and uh, scientists, engineers, um, and, and collaborators that I have uh, at different labs and universities, uh, as well as some startups we've formed, to, to conduct uh, R&D uh, and bring that to market in some really breakthrough technologies, um, all of which have p- the potential for profound global impact. So, you know, I, I think about, uh, you know, what's my legacy going to be? What am I going to do that really has meaning? It's great to make interesting technologies and to make money, but, you know, c- can we do that in a way that also potentially has a lot of profound benefit um, to improve the world, to, pr- to improve the condition that people live in, to, to heal the environment, to solve the energy crisis, to uh, move medicine forward in big ways, to uh, bridge the gap between mind and machine. These are the things I'm working on. You could think of it as my own kind of moonshot lab or moonshot factory. Um, the difference between Magical and an incubator is we don't fund other people's business plans. Um, everything that we're doing was either internally originated by me and my team um, or originated by a scientist um, that we collaborate with. Um, what Magical does is it specializes in, in taking ideas which VCs normally wouldn't touch because they're too far from 
market. They're still in the lab. We know how to work with scientists and engineers when things are still in the lab and bring them to market. And it's a multi-year commitment and it's daily involvement. Incubators don't do that. Accelerators also don't do that. And VCs definitely don't do that. So we usually get involved much earlier and in a much more day-to-day way. Uh, and we do this through the role of a venture producer, which is a, a new role, um, which doesn't really exist in Silicon Valley, but it does exist in Hollywood. A producer is a person who's a professional project creator, not just a project manager, but they really take an idea or source the idea and develop it into something that's viable and produce it all the way to a launch in the movie industry. Producers are skilled at bridging the gap between the money and the talent and getting these projects to market. And they usually manage a pipeline of projects at different stages. The closest thing that Silicon Valley has to that is maybe an EIR, but EIRs inevitably want to become CEOs or VCs. And in my model, a venture producer doesn't want to do that. A venture producer wants to be a venture producer, wants to be involved in the fun, exciting part of the first three to four years of a company. And then they move out into an advisory role. They never become the CEO. Um, They don't become a VC. They have a pipeline of projects under production. And when some mature, that that opens up room for new ones to, to be nurtured. So I think that this is a problem with the Silicon Valley model is that startups feel that, and VCs often say, that they need a CEO way before they need a CEO, in fact. They need a producer. They need somebody who's brought a bunch of companies out to market. They don't really need a professional CEO until they're operating and making money. And that's usually years into a company. In fact, most startups can't attract the kind of person that they would really want in the early years to be their CEO. And so they often call somebody a CEO who has no business being a CEO or who won't scale. And typically the VC model disincentivizes people to step out of the CEO, CEO role. If the founder acts as the CEO, you know, inevitably there's an epic battle between the CEO and the founder, except in very rare circumstances where they try to replace the founder CEO with a professional CEO. But because the model is structured so that if you let go, you'll get washed out, Typically, companies don't make good decisions about this because people are holding on to equity. The, the model is disaligned with, or misaligned with what the company really needs. So I think a different model needs to come into play where people don't have to worry. The people who help build the company in the early days don't have to worry so much about stepping out of the way when the time is right because we've disconnected um, their ultimate exit from that decision. We, we've created a role and a way for venture producers to, to, to benefit and stay in companies, uh, even if you know, they eventually hire a CEO. So what we call founders today, many founders are serial entrepreneurs who are actually extremely talented at producing ventures and not great at being CEOs. Um, you know, even I would put myself in that same category. You know, I, turns out I don't really like operating and scaling a business um, you know, once it starts to get medium to large. That's not fun to me. That's something that, you know, there are people who love to do it and who are really good at it. Those are operators. Operator CEOs, they love managing people and resources and money and operations. Great. Those people should be brought in at the right time. They can be quite destructive if they're brought in too early. Um, And um, a lot of early stage companies can't attract good ones because they have a lot of choices. They don't have to go into a little startup. What we need is this definition of the venture producer role and a model that 
that really supports that. And that's going to actually optimize outcomes for entrepreneurs and investors in the long run. All right. Well, that sounds great. Tell me a, a bit. Let's close on um, a big question. Tell me about the ARC Mission Foundation. Sure. The ARC Mission um, is uh, focused on uh, creating archives. That's why we call it ARC. Archives of humanity's important data and protecting them uh, over long time scales. And in order to do that, uh, we would like to put these archives not only all over the planet, but also off planet. Um, and so we have been working um, on a very near-term realistic plan to put a billion year archives in space and on the moon. Uh, and we can do that now with a special storage technology that is durable over those timescales and is capable of storing hundreds of terabytes in a form that um, can survive in the harsh environment of space under extreme temperatures and cosmic rays for billions of years, in fact. So what we're doing is working to um, collect the data, most of which is open source data, like the Wikipedia and other sources, um, and embed it into this special technology, the storage medium, uh, and then deliver it uh, to these remote locations. Um, the, the idea of the ARC mission is to do this on an ongoing basis, to continuously uh, update ARCs, replace them, uh, and spread them uh, wherever humanity goes. I believe that the purpose of intelligent life is to spread intelligence. Um, and if that's the case, then the ARC mission is a practical way to help fulfill that purpose. First of all, uh, it's necessary in case... Uh, of a non-zero non probability of an extinction level uh, event. You know, it is guaranteed that if you wait long enough, a, a, a comet or a meteor is going to impact the Earth and wipe out most or all life on Earth. It's guaranteed that that will happen. It's happened before. Uh, but there are also man-made risks that we face, um, such as the potential for nuclear war. Um, or genetic modification that somehow is disastrous. Um, the gray goo concept of nanotechnology. There's many, many man-made risks as well. So we actually live in an environment that is actually riskier uh, than ever before because of these risks that we ourselves are imposing on ourselves. Therefore, one benefit of the ARC mission is a planetary insurance policy, a planetary backup. In case we, we wipe all of our civilization out or part of our civilization, um, we'll have a uh, permanent archive in a place that can survive that, that we can eventually recover. Um, another reason for doing it is that no civilization that we know of has ever lasted more than even a thousand or so years. There have been many civilizations, but on average, they only last a few hundred years. Um, we know that there are ancient civilizations that we know very little about today. Um, and the chances are that if you, if you looked over hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years, very little of our civilization will remain because almost everything we've created is highly perishable. Our digital storage media, on average, will last about 50 years, in some cases 100 years, but that's about it. Cement structures don't last that long. Nothing that we've created will really be around even you know, in 10,000 years. It'll all be gone. The pyramids lasted a very long time, and that's all that's really left of the civilization that created them. But they don't carry very much data. They're pretty low-resolution storage media. You know, they're granite, you're, there's car, you know, carvings, hieroglyphics in this granite. It's not very high res. But it is possible to do something like the pyramids today with new technology that's much higher resolution. So that's kind of what the ARC mission is doing. 
there is a, a real-time benefit to this today as well, which is that it's an educational and inspiring project that makes people think about the fragility of our planet, um, makes people think about what's important to preserve, and uh, also stimulates the development of storage media and data transfer technology uh, suitable for space. And if we become a space-faring civilization, uh, we have to come up with a way to extend our digital infrastructure into that environment. And it's a very different environment um, than the terrestrial environment with, uh, you know, very harsh conditions. And so um, the dual purpose here is in the real, in the present day, it's inspirational and, and, and generates new technologies that we need. Um, and in the long term, it may be the only thing that remains of our civilization. So it's, it may be the most important thing humanity ever did. So you say that our, and this is my last question, you say our purpose, is, the purpose of intelligence is to spread that intelligence. Is that a purpose implicit in it or given to it? Um, I think it's implicit in it. I think that um, when we finally really understand what intelligence is, um, we'll look back at this Living Systems book that I mentioned by Miller, in which reproduction was one of the functions of living systems. And I'm fairly confident that truly intelligent systems also also have that, uh, if you will, reproductive urge built in, in this case, to reproduce intelligence. All right. Well, that's a wonderful place to leave it. Nova, this has been absolutely fascinating and hope we can uh, entice you to come back later. Thanks a bunch. Thank you. Very enjoyable. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.